I asked Gunnar, actually, if I could uh, say a few words about uh, what, I, what it is that I do as a Navy chaplain. I know I've had a lot of people ask me, and um, I know a lot of people don't really know what we do. Um, so uh, he was gracious enough to let me spend a couple of minutes. Um, and as you know, I don't usually go all the way up to the full time on the sermon. So, um, all right. So what, what is it that I do as a Navy chaplain? The first thing I'll tell you is that uh, because this is a Southern Baptist church, what I do is I represent you. That's basically what I'm here for. The only reason we have chaplains in the military is because there's a certain segment of the population and uh, represented by various denominations, and and it's based on total numbers of how many of those denominations have, and that and that is decided by people at the top levels in the Department of Defense to say we need this many chaplains uh, and to represent this faith group. And so because we have a large number of Southern Baptist churches, um, we are actually the number one provider of endorsed chaplains. Um, and, and so as a, as a chaplain, the, the, I, I wear two emblems on both sides, a cross on one side of my collar and, a, and an officer rank on the other side of my collar. And as uh, that cross represents that I am there representing Jesus Christ and representing uh, really Southern Baptist um, through my endorsement with the North American Mission Board. And so I'm endorsed by the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention and then um, to go. And then the Navy uh, accepted me as a naval officer um, and, and, and said, OK, you can be a chaplain. Um, now, what, did it, what do I actually do? Because obviously I can come to church here on a Sunday and get to preach on Sundays, so I don't have a pulpit that I preach out of to my sailors on Sundays. Well, I, it, it actually varies from job to job. And, and on my last job on the ship, I was on an aircraft carrier, and I did actually get to preach uh, every single week there. And in fact, I oversaw the entire Protestant program that consisted of five or six different services during the week, as well as a bunch of Bible studies. And I was also over all of the... Uh, I also... Um, organized and trained all of our lay leaders that represented Jewish, Muslim, um, and a whole bunch of other small faith groups that we didn't have chaplains for. So um, part of what I do is, number one, I provide. And that means that I can provide uh, Christian religious worship, uh, communion, baptism, things like that, weddings, for people who see faith in the same way I do. So I provide for my own. And so if a sailor wants to come to my worship service, guess what? He's going to hear the word of God. And he's going to hear um, about Jesus Christ because that is who I represent. I represent people who believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And so when I preach, I preach from the word of God. Um, so that's the first thing I do is I provide for those of like faith and practice. Um, but I also, though, have this other role that I fill because as chaplains... We're not just there to just provide for our own. The only reason the Supreme Court even allows chaplains to be here is because we also fill another role, and that's we facilitate for all. So when I have a Muslim come into my office and say, hey, chaps, I need a, a Muslim service, and do you have an, is there an imam around? No, there's no imams. There's only two in the entire Navy. So um, I, I train him to be a lay leader, and then he gathers with all the other Muslims, and I buy their stuff for them, whatever they need, and I give them a place to hold their, their service. Um, I'm not actually going to lead it for them because I'm not Muslim and I can't do that. And if he comes to me for counseling, he's going to find out very quickly because um, I've had that opportunity to talk to them and say, hey, listen, but, you know, I don't see faith the same way you do. And, and anything I tell you is going to be from my relationship with Christ. So um, the, that's the, uh, the part of it that sometimes makes people a little weird. Um, and, and that's why not everyone is called to that. You have to facilitate for people of all faiths, not just your own. 
But then there's the third part, and that's we get to care for all. And so I don't care whether they're uh, whether they're Christian or Muslim or is or Jewish or whoever, or whether they don't believe anything. Um, I, I do care for everyone, and a lot of that takes the place of counseling. And so I, uh, a lot of what I do now, because I don't do services on Sunday because we're in a local area, there's plenty of churches, there's plenty of chapels on bases run by base chaplains, um, th- that uh, most of what I do is during the week, I have people come into my office and I do lots of counseling. I've done lots of marriage counseling. I've done, lots, I've done way more counseling as a chaplain than I ever did as a, a sitting at a local church. Um, they just, chaplains are, are the go-to person because we're usually embedded with units. And we have complete and total confidentiality, which nobody else in the military can offer that level of confidentiality. And so uh, I get the opportunity to talk to a lot of sailors about a lot of things that um, they're dealing with that they may not want other people uh, to know about. Um, and and in, that, in that way, I do get the chance to share my faith because ultimately... What those people need is Jesus Christ, um, and I'm not there to shove it down their throat, but I am there to hopefully be able to shepherd them and lead them to uh, uh, down that next step in the road of faith on their life. Unfortunately, I also have the other side of my collar that I wear that is the staff corps officer, and I wear an officer rank, and that just simply means that I get to sit in a lot of meetings, and since I report to commanding officers and people who write my fitness reports, that I have to do what they tell me to do and sometimes sit in meetings that I don't like and, and uh, be bored out of my mind with stuff that has nothing to do with my job. Um, and, th- and do other things like do physical training because Na- I'm still in the Navy. And, do, uh, uh, and, and, and mostly, though, honestly, as a chaplain, a lot of what I get paid to do is simply walk around and get to know people. And it's an awesome responsibility. Same thing Gunner does when he goes out and rides with police officers and gets to know them and hangs out with them. That's the only way we get the chance to, to ultimately be able to share Christ with them. And it's an amazing responsibility. It's an amazing uh, a job that um, I get to do, um, and a lot of it in large part to the support that Southern Baptist churches have given uh, through the cooperative program to the North American Mission Board that um, endorses me to the Navy and says, yes, he's a Navy. He can be a Navy chaplain representing Southern Baptists. So um, that's just a little bit of what I do. And it's given me the chance to go from Iraq to the, to the waters of the Pacific, all on an aircraft carrier, to sitting at a base chapel in Panama City, Florida, to now being here in California back again, um, being, with, uh, being with sailors down in Imperial Beach. And uh, I love it. And um, if, there, if you ever have any questions more for me about it, I'd love to be able to talk to you more about it. But uh, we are here today to go back into Romans and to look at Romans chapter 8. Um, and we're going to finish up the, the chapter here in Romans chapter 8 this week. And uh, once again, I just want to thank Gunnar for the awesome privilege it's been for the last three weeks to share this, 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 uh, this chapter of the Bible with you. Um, honestly, I, he gave me the best chapter in Romans. I, I don't know. He, he was feeling really generous to give me this chapter. Um, and uh, it, it really has been awesome to see. And today we're going we're gonna to finally finish up Paul's thoughts here as he's coming from the fact that all of us have to deal with this suffering and what it is that allows us to go through this suffering with Christ. And let's go back at the beginning, though, and remember where we've come from, because we, we remember all the way back at the beginning of Romans, where Romans begins with Paul making the case that all of us are sinners and we're guilty before a holy God. And by the time he gets to Romans 3.23, he's clearly demonstrated that all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then, while demonstrating that we're all sinners, Paul begins to show that the only answer to that sin and guilt is faith in Jesus Christ. And he does this by even taking... 
the Old Testament and following it through from Old Testament examples all the way up through Christ to demonstrate that it's only through faith that we're accepted before a holy God. He goes back to Abraham in Romans chapter 4 when he says, Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him as righteousness. The same faith that Abraham demonstrated is the same faith that God recognizes. And in chapter 4, verse 24 and 25, he says that for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. And then in chapter 5, he goes on and he describes what that justification, which is God declaring us not guilty, what that justification means in our life and, and the forgiveness that comes with it. And of course, then he comes into the argument that, well, if we're forgiven for our sins, then we can just sin with impunity, right? Well, that's what he answers in chapter 6. And he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. And he answers that question. Uh, by, by showing that, that forgiveness and justification means that we have freedom from sin. But of course, he comes to chapter 7 and recognizes the fact that even though we have this freedom from sin, we have this old nature that means there's, this, there's still this struggle that goes on. With the things that I want to do, that's what I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, that's what I do instead. And so in chapter 7, we see that struggle. And then he brings us up into chapter 8. And in chapter 8, Paul tells us that although the struggle continues... He begins this chapter by saying there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because we have been adopted as his sons with all the inheritance of that adoption. But of course, here's the thing. The inheritance includes sharing in Christ's suffering, not just his glory. And so um, and so because we have we suffer, we must rely on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is in us working to conform our will to God's will which is always for our good, even when it doesn't seem like it. And even in the trouble, we have the promise that he has chosen us, that he has chosen us in the past, justified us in the present, and will keep us until glory and glorification in the future. And that brings us up to today's passage. In verse 31 through 39, it says, Romans chapter 8, What, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who will also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you so much that even though even this morning we've been given examples of, of the, 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 the trouble that we have to go through here on earth and the, 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 the suffering that we have to face, that we have a promise from you that you love us. May we, help, we see that clearly from your word this morning. May your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and minds. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Here we have 
a passage that starts off with Paul saying, what then shall we say to these things? What, what are these things he's talking about here? The suffering, the fact that all of us are going to have to go through suffering, the fact that God has given us his Holy Spirit, the fact that the Holy Spirit is in heaven uh, interceding on our behalf and that God has saved us and chosen us in the past and protects us in the future. He says, what are we going to say about these things? The bottom line is, if God is for us, who is against us? The answer to that is nothing can be against us. Now, when I think of this passage it reminds me of a couple other verses. Psalm 61.3 says, For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Proverbs 18.10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. Um, when, when we've, Beth and I have gotten to see a good portion of the world now, not as much as I'd probably want to see, but... I've gotten to see a lot of Asia. We've been to Mexico a couple times. We've been all over the U.S. And, and one of the things that I like to go do, um, I don't know if she actually enjoys it as much as I do, but I like to go see the old castle, the fortresses and the, the, the armaments and things like that that we built over the years. And so when we went to, uh, to San Francisco, um, up near the Golden Gate Bridge, we went and looked at the, 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 the old fort that's there that's built into the mountain so that, so that, uh, the, in the past when we thought that people would be able to attack us up there, that we've got this fortress built. And we've, and, and, and we've seen things like that. You can see those all over the world when you visit where we, mankind has built these fortresses to protect ourselves. And one of the neatest ones was going to, uh, Japan, the emperor's, uh, palace in the middle of Tokyo. Uh, you have, um, it's got these humongous walls that, I mean, they're, some of them are torn down now, but you can still see the, the city walls that were, that surrounded the palace and they're huge. And the gates themselves probably reach up to the ceiling right there with doors that are thick wood like this. And, and they would be able to be closed. And then inside of that, there's a moat that goes around it. And you can imagine in the past, in the 16, 1700s and, and, and people would try to attack the, the castle and you'd have these massive walls and massive gates. And, and then if they got over those, then you'd have a moat and you'd have the crocodiles in there. And if they made it past that, then you'd get up to a hill that you had to climb and, and there'd be archers on top of the castle with, with arrows to shoot down at you. And if you finally made it all past that, you still have the castle walls and everything else. And it, it's amazing to think that we built this kind of stuff to protect ourselves and that it kept people out for hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, of course, modern weaponry kind of does away with all that. And, uh, but we still, what do we do? We, we build electronic weapons now that we can try to protect ourselves with. And we put submarines under the ocean and destroyers on either side of an aircraft carrier because the aircraft carrier is actually pretty weak other than the aircraft on it. And so we do all this stuff to protect ourselves um, and ultimately, though, as a Christian, our true protection, our true castle, our true fortress, the ultimate protection we can ever have is from Jesus Christ and from God. And so he begins here, and as he's talking here, what he's talking about is that God is our ultimate protection. And when we're going through these sufferings and these trials, that if we can keep our eyes focused on the one who is our fortress, the one who is our strength that we can get through any of those things that come into our life. And now how, how, what does he show us in order to be able to show us his protection? The first thing we see here is in verse 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? You see, 
Paul bases his argument on the fact that God will protect us around the fact of what it took to save us. God was willing to go through miraculous lengths to order to make us his children, in order to adopt us as his sons. What did it cost him to make us his children? He did, it says he did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. God was willing to give up his only son, Jesus Christ, in order to make us, in order to allow us to have a relationship with him. And if he was willing to give up everything for us to, to be in this relationship with him, won't he be willing to protect us when, what, what, when the things we're going through here on earth that, remember, are to conform us to his will, seem like they're overwhelming and too much to bear? And so God willingly gave up his own son. Now, this is pictured for us in the Old Testament. If you remember, um, the ultimate protection of this is when you think of a parent having to give up their child is when Abraham had his only son, Isaac, and uh, or, or his, his promised son, Isaac. And, and God, here he is, his son that they've waited for all their lives. And God tells Abraham, take your son and go sacrifice him. Well, Abraham's like, God, you promised me a son. This is the only, this is who you said was going to like create the rest of my people that are ultimately going to be your people. And but but what did you know, what does Abraham do there? Abraham takes his son out and he's ready to sacrifice him until God shows him that, hey, there's a ram over here for you to sacrifice. That's what true. That's what that's what service that was. That is what. That's the picture of what Jesus was willing to do for us. That's the picture of what God was willing to do for us. That's really, that's true love. And so many times as we go through these things in our lives, we forget how much we mean to God and what it took for us to become his children. And if we can keep our eyes focused on that, it helps us. The, uh, and the, the interesting thing that I find in this whole passage is this, that... Um, that when that the same words that are used here where it says, but he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all are the same words that are used in Galatians 2.20 when it's talking about Jesus Christ and what he did for us. It says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That gave himself for me is the same words as delivered him over for us all. And what that's showing is God willingly gave up his son for us. But Jesus Christ, who was also God come in the flesh, God the Son, he willingly gave up his own life for us. It wasn't as if he was saying, okay, God, I'll do it, but I don't really want to because I don't really love them. The entire person of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, willingly did what they had to do, sacrificed themselves, gave themselves up for us. That's how much God loves each one of us. So he was willing to go to any length spiritually to protect us, and it cost him dearly. But the second thing that we see here is in verse 33, and it says... Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies us. You see, if he was willing to go to this length to protect us, how is he going to protect us? Because we've already looked at the fact that we are going to go through suffering. So obviously the protection is not that, hey, my life's going to be easy and I'm never going to have to face any, anything negative in my life. That's not it at all. That's what we'd like it to be sometimes. But that's not what it's all about. 
So what is he protecting us from? What is he doing for us? And the first thing we see is that his justification frees us from guilt. One of the things that we can do to ourselves or we can allow others to do to us is to try to is to try to put this guilt load, this load of guilt back on us to remind us of our past or our present things that have already been forgiven, declared not guilty. That's what justification means. He says here, who will bring a charge against God's elect? If somebody can bring a charge against you, that means they're accusing you of something. That means they're trying to say you're guilty of something. And um, ultimately, who is our accuser as Christians? It's Satan himself. When Job, if you read back to the book of Job, it's an amazing book, but it all starts off with Satan coming to God and saying, hey, God, that guy down there that you think is so so godly, I don't think he's that godly. Look what will happen if you let me take away all his wealth, all his family, all his possessions, all this other stuff. Satan is up there accusing each one of us. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, um, this is... Uh, of course, Revelation is, is what's going to happen in the future. And, and you have this uh, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. We're seeing at that point what's being done to Satan. And listen to how it describes him. It says in Revelation 12, 10, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our, do- our God day and night. Satan's job and mission is to go to God and say, those Christians are fake. They're guilty. They're worthless. They're sinners. They fail. They're no good. God's, what he's already done for us is say, you know what? You're not guilty. I declare you not guilty. I find you not guilty. Satan is going to try to bring it back to you that, hey, that stuff you did in your past, remember? That's all still there. You're worthless. You can't do anything for God. You should just give up. Just quit. Just fail. Just give in. Because ultimately, you're still guilty. God is sitting there saying, you know what? You're not guilty. I've declared you righteous. I've declared you not guilty. And it's only, and, and, and God says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies You know, ultimately, who is our sin against? It's not against Satan. Satan's trying to get us to sin. And ultimately, yes, we can sin against other people, but ultimately, who are we really sinning against? It's against God himself. In uh, Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is a a beautiful passage of forgiveness and and, uh, repentance. And Psalm 51 is where... David, he's sinned against God. If you'll remember, he's, he's actually committed adultery with Bathsheba. She's gotten pregnant. So in order to cover that up, he actually murders uh, Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And after that, he's been confronted by the prophet. And, and, uh, and, and, and uh, he finally comes to his senses and says, wow, I've, I've sinned. And Psalm 51 is his repentance and then his experiencing forgiveness from God. And in Psalm 51.4, now remember, he's murdered someone and he's committed adultery. So obviously there's been some people involved in his sin that he has harmed in the process. But look at who he says he sinned against in Psalm 51.4. It says, against you, that's God, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. David understood this, 
that our sin is ultimately against God. He's the one who's offended by our sin. He's the one. He's the only one who can judge us to be guilty. And so when God himself says, you are not guilty, we have no guilt. It's forgiven. It's gone. It's done. And then when we start feeling it and bringing it back on ourselves, it's not because God's putting it there. It's because Satan is trying to bring that back up. It's because we're trying to bring that back into our mind. And God is telling us, no, I've forgiven you for that. You're not guilty anymore. And so he goes on and he, he, he goes into verse 34 and he says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Now, at first when I read this, I was like, well, is this just the same, saying the exact same thing? He already said he, uh, he, he, he already said that he justified us, that he declared us not guilty. So is con- condemnation the same thing? But, but I kind of thought about it and was like, well, it's not, I, I kind of don't think it's exactly the same here. And the first thing that came to my mind was the beautiful story in John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verses 3 through 11. I want to read this, this uh, story this morning. Um, this is, this is uh, Jesus, and he's, he's, he's out there, and, and he gets called over to, um, to this adulterous woman. And, and let's, let's read this passage in John chapter 8. Verse 3 through 11, it says, The scribes and the Pharisees uh, brought a woman caught in adultery. And having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? They were saying this, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones. And he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. What, what is this story here? Um, I, I know some, if you have a New International Version, it says that it's, it may not be there in the earliest manuscripts. I think this is actually part of the, of the gospel text, and it is supposed to be there. And, uh, you know, and, and one of the reasons is because it fits with who Jesus is and his character. And the fact that he, has, um, that, that he has, has, is a forgiving God. And everything about condemnation is about punishment. And the fact that here's these Pharisees and they wanted to punish this lady, as the Old Testament law said, you're, you know, the a person caught in adultery was condemned to death. But Jesus comes along and says, I, that's not what Christianity is all about. He tells her, go and sin no more. But he also looks at them and says, you know what, if you're without sin, then cast the first stone. He says, I don't condemn you. And when we, and that is all about forgiveness, you know, on the one hand, God declares us not guilty. But the fact of the matter is we have committed sin, right? All of us. But Jesus Christ, because of what he did for us on the cross, he took all of our punishment. He took all of our condemnation. There's no one that can hold that against us anymore and say, you deserve to be punished more. You deserve to, be, to, 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 to pay for what you did. And so all of that guilt and all of that shame that comes into that is, for, is gone when we understand our place that we've been forgiven through what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. 
And there's a reason that Paul starts off all of Romans chapter 8 with that one little verse that says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And many times when we sit there and we fail and we say we can't do it anymore and, and I'm not good enough, I can't, I can't go through this and I can't serve you well enough, it's because we're, there, Satan is trying to tempt us to forget about the fact God has forgiven you. You're not being condemned. You should, you, we don't have to face that guilt and that fear anymore because of what he did for us on the cross. There's a, there's a, you know, the reason he's able to do this is because of his place of power. It says, Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. That right hand of God there is a unique phrase that was used by the Jews, and, it's, and it has to deal with the place of power. Um, the right hand was always seen as the one of power. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, it says, What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. You see, Jesus Christ had the power to forgive us because he took our place on the cross. And then he wasn't just left down here on earth dead. He was raised from the dead and he is at the right hand of his father, God himself. We already found out that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. Now we're told that Jesus Christ himself intercedes for us at the right hand of the father. The place of power, the place that has the power to forgive us for every single time we have failed. The place that has the power to get the strength to get through whatever we're going through. He's the right hand of power and authority. The interesting thing to me about this passage is that, and I like to always look back, and, and anytime you see something in the Old Testament that, that foreshadows or, or prophesies something in the New Testament, to point it out because, um, you know, the, the Bible is one continuous story from Genesis to Revelation. And, and if you look at Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, you'll find out that this is actually prophesied long before Jesus was ever born, that this was going to be one of the roles of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, 12, it says, Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Here is, here's a prophecy of the Messiah, who we now know as Jesus who he was going to come, he was going to die for the sins of many, bear, bear our sins on a cross. He himself bore the sin of many, but then he wasn't going to just, that was going to be the final thing. He was going to intercede for those who had sinned. He took our place on the cross and then he went to God. He's in the place of power saying, those people down there who need your help, God, Bring your power down on them. And oh, by the way, God, the Holy Spirit, indwells each of us, giving us that power, giving us that strength, allowing us to overcome the negative, the pain, the grief, the guilt, the sin that's in our life. So his sacrifice protects us from punishment. His justification frees us from guilt. But here's ultimately where Paul is going to end his thought with this. It's that his love empowers us against all of our enemies. Starting with verse 35, it says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? 
Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. You see, Paul, in all the arguments he's made up till this point, he's drawing to the conclusion that ultimately what can we trust in when we're going through suffering and when we're going through trouble? Because the first thing that usually goes when we're in the middle of these bad things that are going on in our life, the easiest thing it is is to start doubting whether God really loves us. We know it's easy to quote and say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's easy to quote that. It's much harder to remember it when it feels like your boss is against you, your family's against you, you've lost the person you're closest to. All these things are falling down around you. And that's when Paul says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing will. And if there's one thing that we can hold on to when we're going through suffering is that Jesus Christ, that God still loves us, that he cares about us, and that even though it feels like he's far away, he's still right there. He's still got us in his hand and he's still got control. When I was in Iraq, there was a song that meant a whole lot to me. And I, I'd never heard it before. I know it had been out for a couple of years by then. Um, but it was, it's called You Never Let Go. It's a worship song. And I remember the first time I heard it, and I was, uh, I was, we were doing a, I, we were putting on a big uh, joint worship um, service at the base. There was a whole bunch of base chapels on that base, and and we were together with all the chaplains, and we were putting it on. And uh, my my friend, who was a, who's an army chaplain, started playing it, and uh, he's an amazing uh, worship musician. And he, uh, he, he, and it starts off, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. And it goes on talking about how I will fear no evil. And, and, and ultimately, the course is you never let go. No matter the high, no matter the low, you'll never let go of me. And, uh, you know, for me, being in Iraq was the first time I had always been, I had been away from home before. You know, we had dealt with separation. I'd been in training events. I'd been, to, I'd, I'd been away at chaplain school. We were dating when I went to boot camp. So there was... I'd been through a lot of that kind of stuff, separation, all that. But it was the first time where I'd been away for seven months. That was a long time. And then it was also the first time where I'd ever felt like my life was actually in danger. Now, I'm not, uh, even as a Marine, I never, ever, ever wanted to be with the wing. I was always like, let me be on the ground, put an M16 in my hand. I'm good. I can deal with that. But for me, being in an aircraft it was always a little, little frightening, to be honest. And uh, in a job where I was having to fly weekly, if not daily, um, it, it was, it was probably the scariest thing I've ever done. And then, and then also sitting in all the briefs and finding out, oh yeah, we took small arms fire or coming back and you find out there's a bullet hole in the aircraft. Um, you know, those kind of things were not the most, uh, were not the, the funnest things to deal with. And when I heard this song and when I, I heard this reminder at this praise and worship, uh, gathering that we were putting together, it was just like this huge punch in the face from God to say, no matter where you go, no matter what you're dealing with, you can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and I'm going to be with you and I'll never let you go. And I just sat there as I heard that song and, and it just brought tears to my eyes as I thought about the fact that you can't go, you can go to Iraq, you can go to Africa, you can go to Japan, you can go wherever it is and you can be separated from all the things that you hold dear in your life and you can be dealing with, with danger and things that you've never dealt with before and ultimately, God is still the one that's in control. And there's nothing that can separate us from his love. In, uh, 
it's it's interesting to me that when he reads this, when he says in verse 36, he draws in an Old Testament passage here. That's why it's it's in capitalized in your Bibles there. It says, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long, for we were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Why did he bring this passage in? I thought about that. And then I read Psalms and I understood, I think, why he did this. That passage is actually from Psalm 44. And if you want to look at Psalm 44, Psalm 44, 17 through 22. Remember, this is this is, you know, thousands of years before that the Paul is writing in the book of Psalms as uh, as as this psalm is written. We'll start with verse 17. And this is what it says. All this has come upon us, but we have not forgotten you and we have not dealt falsely with your covenant. Our heart has not turned back and our steps have not deviated from your way. Yet you have crushed us in a place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or extended a hand to a strange God, would not God find this out? For he knows the secrets of the heart. But for your sake, we are all killed all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Arouse yourself. Why do you sleep, O Lord? And as I read that passage, I understood why Paul put it there. Because here's what he was saying to these people who were reading this at that time and to us who are reading it today. It has always been a fact that God's people would have to go through suffering. Here it was all the way back in the book of Psalms. And what that psalm is showing is that they were they were crying out to God and saying, God, we've done everything you ask us to do. We've been trying to follow your word. And yet. Our enemies are coming against us and it feels like you're not there. And just as it was in the book of Psalms, it's still that way today. When you get to a place where suffering has become too great and you feel like God isn't there, God is still there. And and Paul was saying what you're experiencing now where you think it feels like God isn't there, God is still there. Who is the man who's writing this to them, by the way? You see, Paul is, 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 was, a, was the beginning of a long string of Christian martyrs through history. Paul was one of the early, you know, he, wrote, he writes more than half of the New Testament. And yet, what, how does he die? He dies at the hands of the Romans who is trying to win to Christ. Because he's willing to lay down his life for God. And I'm sure when he is in a Roman prison facing what he is pretty certain is going to be death... He's still able to write and say, who's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Because he understood where his strength came from. And all through history, people have been willing to lay down their lives for Christ. How do they do that? It's because they're focused not on the pain, not on the suffering, not on what they have to go through, but on the fact that Christ loves them and what it cost him for them to have that relationship with him. Going back to that beginning part of him having to give his son, Jesus Christ, on a cross. You know, you have martyrs starting with the early Christians. The, every one of the writers of the New Testament, other than John, and John was persecuted, every other writer of the New Testament was put to death for their faith. You have, even in the, up to this decade, the, the leaders of the Christian church in China right now, um, up until the past recent, few past recent years, the leaders of the Christian church were not judged by who had the latest PhD or the best, uh, the best seminary degree or, or the biggest church. They were judged by who had spent more time in a Chinese prison for 
sharing their faith and for living their lives for Jesus Christ and for pastoring a church. Even in our modern times, there are people who are willing to suffer persecution for their faith. We've been lucky. We haven't had to do hardly any of that in the United States. But there may be a day coming where we will, and the only thing that will get us through those times if they come is knowing the love of Christ. And then he goes on and he ends this passage with these great verses. He says in verse 37, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now when I read this verse, when I think of conquering, I think of one thing, he-man. I know, kind of funny, right? I, you know, when I think of a conqueror, I think of He-Man. He's muscled, you know, I know some of you are probably, you don't know who I'm talking about, but he's cool. And he's got a big sword, and he pulls it out, and he goes, by the power of Grayskull, I have the power, and he becomes this, this, this just awesome figure that can go out and, and, and defeat all the bad guys in the universe. I know, it's from the 90s, okay? It's a cartoon. Um, but it's cool. And, uh, That is not what I think of when I go back here to verse 35 and read tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. What comes in my mind there is a person who is in rags and can't fend for themselves and is begging for food and and, and people are trying to kill them and they're having to hide in caves and things like that. But then we come up to 37, and, he sa- and, and Paul says, In all these things, when you are in peril and nakedness, and people are trying to hurt you, and you fear for your life, in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. And I like the way the King James puts it, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And so when you're going through these times where you feel weak, and you feel powerless, and you feel like everybody and everything is against you, That's the time where the Holy Spirit comes in and reminds you, you are more than a conqueror because of God's love, because of Christ's love in your life. We don't just muddle through life when we go through these things. We conquer it. We conquer it. And the only way we feel that way and we understand that is because we understand the love of Christ and the love of God. And so he ends with these words. If we are more than conquerors, we can say in verse 38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death can't separate him from Christ's love. Being alive can't separate him from Christ's love. Angels, even created beings in heaven, can't separate us from the love of Christ. Because he has chosen us, and he has saved us, and he has called us his own. And then this word principalities there, that word is translated demons in the NIV, and and that's not actually what the word is in Greek. But it does carry that meaning of the spiritual forces of evil. And so just as the angels who are the good ones in heaven can't come between us and God, Even the dark, even the demons, even Satan cannot come against God and his children. Nor things present, nor things to come. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a worrier. When I find it, when I start thinking that things aren't going to work out my way, I start, I start trying to figure out what I can do to change it because I don't, I don't like not knowing. But if we can ever look at this and say, you know what? 
whatever's going to come, it doesn't matter. God's got it figured out already. God's going to love me no matter what there is in my future. Nor things to come, nor powers. This is the earthly powers as opposed to the principalities, the spiritual powers. Now, we've been lucky to live in a nation where it was founded upon people who who generally had the same moral viewpoint that we would have from the scriptures. But I can tell you that's changing. We're in a very post-Christian nation. And at some point, we may have to take more of a stand for our faith than what we've currently had to do. And while that may not sound fun, the fact of the matter is, if that ever happens, we have the assurance from God that even the government is not bigger than God's love for us. Nor height, we can't go to the moon, we can't go to Mars, nor depth, we can't go in the bottom of the ocean, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, no matter what we go through here on earth, and we know there's people going through things here this morning that need to feel the love of God, we are adopted into God's family, where he promises that he will protect us, he will keep us, no matter what attacks we're facing and whether we live or die. His love will keep you, and it will never let you go. Let's pray. Lord, You've given us your promise in your word that you will love us forever. That you have chosen us, you have justified us. And one day we will live with you for all of eternity. And we just thank you and praise you that your love is bigger than anything that we are going through today. That we've been forgiven, that we can experience your grace and your mercy. And we can know every single day that you love us and that you will protect us and guide us and be with us. We give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen.